0: Every now and again, on uh, our Sunday morning worship with um, the hymns and the prayers and the scripture reading, part of me just says, "Let's just pray and <laughs> say amen and give glory to God." And and it was just, um, I was just really just so blessed uh, in our worship service uh, thus far. It's just been so so rich and uh, grateful for that and. And uh, now we have the opportunity to look uh, once again at God's word, and and to do so in a little bit uh, uh, more depth than we have. And I I pray and trust that it'll be a blessing to you as as this passage has been a, a blessing to me. Uh, the passage I have in mind is uh, Philippians chapter one, verses one to eighteen, and it's a kind of in keeping in. Th- the theme of faith that we've been looking at over the last couple of weeks as we've taken a break from the Gospel of John. Uh, we started looking at some Old Testament examples of faith. Uh, the example we looked at of the obedience of Daniel's faith uh, from uh, Daniel chapter 1, and then we looked at the um, heart, if you will, of David's faith. Uh, the psalm that we just read was a psalm written by David. Um, In some sense, that psalm could have actually been um, what we're going to look at this morning because of the way it relates to the theme that we're talking about, which is uh, the confidence of faith. So we have Daniel's obedience of faith, David's heart of faith, we looked at, and this week it's the, the confidence of faith. In other words, what does it mean, what does it mean to to have faith and to rest in God. To be confident in what God is doing in our lives and also what God is doing in the world. That, that's what faith does in the world. Faith lives that way. Faith has that perspective. And so we are going to now look at the Apostle Paul as an example of that, of that confidence. And really, as you'll see, it's a confidence that... Um, you might say, he has no business having. He, he, really, he really doesn't when you look from a worldly perspective. Paul Supply has no business claiming confidence, and yet he does, and we're going to see that. And so let us hear God's word again, and uh, we will look at this passage in, in a bit of detail with that theme, the confidence of, of faith. Philippians chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse 1 here, the Word of God. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way, of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for the inspiration, Holy Spirit, that you have given to the Apostle Paul to communicate these truths to the church in Philippi and then to pass these truths down onto us unto us. We thank you, Father, for your word that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword that pierces both joint and marrow and discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And this morning, Father, we pray that as we look at Paul's words here by inspiration of the Spirit to the church, that we would be strengthened by them. Enable us, Lord, to have a measure of the confidence that you granted to the Apostle Paul and joy that you gave to him that we may walk in this world as those who are committed servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, strengthened by the faith that you have given to us in his name. We ask for your blessing now in Christ's name. Amen. So if you've studied the book of Philippians at all, you're probably aware of uh, the fact that this epistle is referred to by many as the epistle of joy. Have you you heard that, uh, Philippians, the epistle of joy, and if you read through it, uh, you can see see why. In in fact, in the first chapter alone, Apostle Paul makes these statements. He says in verse 4, that he is always offering prayer. And then he says, with joy in my every prayer for you all. In verse 18, he says, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. And then in verse 25, he says, he is concerned for their progress and joy in the faith. And you go through the rest of the letter and you read beyond this chapter, it's hard to miss the fact that this really is an epistle of of joy. Paul is joyful and he's rejoicing. and He wants us as believers and these believers to rejoice. Now, what makes this so amazing is when you consider the circumstances of Paul's life up until this point, They would hardly amount to um, a recipe for joy. If you read Second Corinthians chapter eleven, verses twenty-three to twenty-eight, Paul gives this detailed description of the hardships that he has faced as as a Christian, and not much has improved because when he's writing this letter, he's actually writing it from prison. So, just quickly listen to how Paul describes his life as a Christian leading up to this to this other imprisonment that he's currently writing from. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 11 starting in verse 23. He he writes to this church Are they servants of Christ? He's he's defending his apostleship here. And he says, I'm a better one. And then he says, I'm talking like a madman. It's like you've pushed me to do this, right? With far greater labors, far greater imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death, in toil and hardships, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from the other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fail and I am not indignant? What an amazing testimony that none of you or me can claim for ourselves. And yet, in the midst of this, what Jesus has called him to do, Paul is in prison and he's writing these verses with joy. but he's not just writing them with joy. He's actually writing them, and this is what we're going to focus on, with confidence in what God is doing through all of this. This confidence, if you look here, a man confined in prison under constant surveillance of soldiers from the most powerful empire in the world, he says in verse 6, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And then he says in verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that's a statement of confidence, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Then he says in verse 19, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And in verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So I thought about his faith, and I thought about his circumstances, and I asked the question, how can someone be so joyful and confident amid such, humanly speaking, oppressive circumstances? How can he be certain that the Philippians are going to be perfected? How can Paul be certain that the gospel is going to continue to advance? How can he have confidence to say that he will be delivered? That he's going to continue with them? Where does that kind of confidence come from? And that kind of confidence comes from that divine gift of faith, that faith that looks beyond oneself to the trust and dependence on Almighty God, that God will be faithful to his promises and God will be faithful to carry out his plan. And no matter what begins to fall apart around you and your circumstances, no matter what it is, Faith looks up and says, my hope is in the Lord, and it will not, and it will not crumble when push comes to shove. It, it will not collapse in on itself because faith sees that God is ultimately the one in charge, and that psalm that we read could not have been a more perfectly applicable psalm. Because at the end of the day, our Lord Jesus Christ, when he went to the cross to die, though he was without sin, unlike us, he bore our sin upon himself. And as all of the harm and the rejection and the evil and our sin collapsed in upon him, he says, into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit. Why does he say that? Because he knows that through it all, He is held tight by the almighty God. And he will not let his loved one see corruption or see decay. And so he knows he's going to be delivered. And that faith that we have in the living God is that faith that he is the founder and the perfecter of. So that when we go through trials and tribulations and suffering, we can actually go through them, though they are hard and though they will cause sorrow and sadness, we can actually go through them with an an abiding joy and a a confidence that says, I'm trusting that all these things are working according to God's perfect plan for my good and for his glory. And this is what we see in, at least what I saw in Philippians chapter 1. Paul sees his circumstances in, I guess, two ways. One, he sees them through the cross of Christ. That's how we need to see our circumstances. We need to see them through the cross. This is verse 6 when he says, I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ. So we're going to look at that. What does it mean to be confident that All that is happening in our lives personally is for our good and sanctification. It's not easy to do, but it's what we're called to do. It's what Paul does. And then secondly, he sees his circumstances of life, not just from this personal sanctification, but he sees it as God carrying out his plan and promises through Jesus Christ, right? It's not just a personal acceptance, but Paul also sees the bigger picture beyond himself. Confidence that God is at work in him and confidence that God is at work in the world. Those two components are are a foundation of faith in in God. So that's what we're going to look at. So so look at verse 6. He begins by thanking God for their partnership in the gospel, expressing his confidence in verse 6, and he says, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. And so how does he know? Well, he says in verse 7 that it's right for him to feel this way about them, that is to have such confidence. Why? Because they are all partakers with him of grace. And so he sees both his imprisonment and the opportunity to defend the gospel as part of that grace that he has received in Christ Jesus, that grace he shares with them. And so in other words, he knows God's grace is at work sanctifying him through these circumstances, and because they share in that same grace of God given to the Apostle Paul, he can be sure that God will also complete the work he began in them. You see how that works? He's he's saying, I know that God will complete his work in you. And the reason that I know is because God is showing me grace. He's completing his work in me while I'm in prison. And because you share that grace with me, I'm telling you, I know that just as he will complete it in me, he will complete it in you. What God began, that good work, he will finish what he started. There's an implication to that. And the implication to that is what? That you and I are not yet perfected while on this earth. And you won't be perfected until the day of Christ Jesus. When he comes back on that day of the final resurrection of the dead, where our souls and our bodies are brought back together and we are raised again in Christ. You are not yet perfect, beloved, and I am not yet perfect. And that means that God is still at work in you and me, Through all of our circumstances. Everything that happens to you in this life is God working to conform you to the image of Christ, to shape our thinking, to shape our hearts, to shape our view of the world, to shape our loves and our desires to shape it all so that at the end of the day, when we are completely sanctified and perfected, he can look at us and say, there is one made in the image of my son. So that we we reflect the beauty of Christ in, in our attitudes and in all of those things that make us people. You see, God began a good work in you when he took out yours and my heart of stone, right? Took out the heart of stone and he did what? He gave you a heart of flesh, life. God began a good work in you and me when, when according to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. God began a good work in you and me when he created you in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is that good work he did. And this is what saving faith believes and has confidence that For those who love God, all these things that happen are happening for our good, for those who are called according to his purposes. Now, me and you, we're not always going to feel that, are we? Sometimes, sometimes it's hard to see. Sometimes the sanctification process is ugly and it's messy and it's painful. I know we are a work in progress, the scripture says, and I can look back at my own walk and I can look back at, those own, at my own moments in life and oh boy, they're painful. But I also know I'm sure this was painful for for Paul, all these things. But I also know this, that I wouldn't trade any of them in if it meant that I didn't know Christ as my Savior. If, If those experiences meant that I, through them, have come to love and to know Jesus Christ better, I wouldn't trade them. And I know some of you have gone through things far worse than I have. And I want you to know, I just want to remind you that no matter what you have gone through, never believe the lie that Satan wants to tell you that if that hadn't happened, your life would be better. Because through all of those things, Christ has ultimately used them to save you to redeem you, and to conform you into the image of his son. And he's still doing that. And so that's what Paul sees in the circumstances of his his life. And it's messy and it's sometimes painful. But let me give you four encouragements in that regard. I thought of these encouragements partly because in part because of our trip to Rome, and I, I thought about him like this: When we went to Rome, we actually went to the Vatican, and we saw all of the art that was in the Vatican. And as you're going through this tour, you end up coming. I mean, I mean, there's just there's statues and paintings and artwork. I mean, even the building itself is just an incredible masterpiece. And you walk to the end of this tour, and at the end of the end of the tour, you you come into like what everyone would know is the Sistine Chapel, right? You come to the Sistine Chapel and, and I mean, and there is stuff that's just, as, just amazing throughout the whole thing. But in the Sistine Chapel, you're in there and you're, you're seeing this incredible painting on the ceiling of this church and all of the details. And, and you're realizing that this, this picture was painted by a, a master painter. Michelangelo, right? An absolute master painter. And I sat there and I wondered, where, I mean, where do you start? Like, I'm a, I'm a stick figure guy. When we play Pictionary at home, I'm like a Mr. You know, stick Figure and I don't have a visual mind. And, and I'm thinking, I, I wouldn't even know, where do you do the first, where do you do the first line? And where do you go from there? when you paint that line. And and this master painter, somewhere on that canvas, he made his first stroke. And I have to imagine that Michelangelo, in some ways, he's painting this ceiling. He has a picture of what he's trying to capture, and he's beginning to paint that masterpiece and build it out. And, And I think, just like a master builder or an artist, I'm always reminded, and this is the encouragement to you, that God knows exactly what the finished product needs to look like. God has a clear vision why all these things are being used to Sanctify us. They're not random. It's it's not by mistake. The purpose and the goal of our being saved, Paul says, is that we be conformed to the image of his son. That's what he redeemed you for. And so all the strokes and all of the colors of your life are all purposed to that end, and you can know it. A. W. Tozer says, to accomplish this sanctification, he disengages us from earthly ambitions and draws us away from the cheap and unworthy prizes that worldly men set their hearts upon. This is part of sanctification. The second thing to keep in mind is that God knows exactly not only what the finished product is, but He knows how to bring it about. He knows how to bring it about. Romans 8, 28 says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purposes. And in other words, it, it's not mistake, it's not whimsical, it's not malicious, it's not arbitrary, it's controlled, and there's a purpose, and it's for our good and his glory. So he, he knows what it looks like, he knows how to bring it about. Thirdly, he knows your weaknesses. If you're a sculptor, you know that stone so well that if you were to hit it, so at least that's how I understand, if you were to hit it at a certain angle, it would crack. You would ruin the whole stone. God knows your weaknesses. And my weaknesses, such that though Satan wants to sift us like wheat, Jesus knows that he will not let us be sifted beyond what we are able to bear. He will not let us be chiseled in such a way that our faith will crumble and we will become destroyed. And why is that an encouragement to me and you? It, it means this that what you have endured in life. God has tailored for you knowing that it will not crumble you, but it'll strengthen you. And here's the truth. You have endured things that I have not endured that God probably sees and says, I ought not give this trial to Roman because this will cause Roman, ooh, this might make him crumble if I'm not upholding his faith, right? But I'm going to give it to this individual because this is what I need to use for them to build them up. And the same is true for me. Look, there are things in the world that could happen to people that I look at now, and I don't know how I'd react in the future, but if I looked at now, I might think, boy, should God, I don't know how I would ever respond, should God bring that trial upon me? And of course, the person, biblical person that comes to your mind is who? Job. Wow, what do you do with that? What do you do with that? Your, your whole family dies. Your wife hates you and divorces you. Your health is deteriorated to the point that he is scraping scabs off himself, sitting in the dust and the ashes. He loses everything, everything he had worked for, all of his wealth, all of his riches, all of his power, all of his family. Anything Job or you and I could ever want from the world is totally removed from him. And the thing you have to remember when you read Job is that Job didn't know why it was happening. We know because we read Job, but Job, when he's going through it, He doesn't know. And yet, at the end of it, God chose Job to do this so that he might display the power of his glory and the power of faith through Job's obedience. Isn't that what he tells Satan? Satan goes, the only reason Job is trusting in you, God, is because you gave him all these things. Tell you what, strike him down, God, Let me strike him down and he will curse you to your face. And God says, Oh, yeah? Have at it. Do all that you want to do to him, only spare his life. And Satan goes and wreaks total havoc. And is it easy for Job? Oh, man, no. He is torn, he is struggling. He is sometimes on the verge of doubting and his friends are no help. They're confused, they're trying to help, but he's, he's like at the lowest. And at the end of it all, Job rises up and God rebukes him and he covers his mouth. And he says, once I've spoken, twice I, I won't say another word. And he repents and humbles himself in dust and ashes. And of course, the Lord then builds him back up. but but the point is I think about that and I think I don't know that I could go through that and God says to us, don't think like that. Think of it like this. I know your weaknesses and I know what you are capable of bearing and though it doesn't feel like it, trust me, when I tell you that all of this is for your good. And that's the confidence that he wants us to have. Hebrews 4:15-16 says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And finally, he knows the finished product. He knows how to bring it about. Thirdly, he knows our weaknesses, where not to hit us. And finally, he knows what we can bear. 1 Corinthians ten thirteen. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Beloved, that's a great comfort. He knows those things about us. And so the Apostle Paul can write this to them. In the midst of all of his circumstances, trusting God to sanctify him, he can say to them, I'm confident that God will also complete the work in you. You see, that's faith. That's how he wants us to view how he is working in our life. The same is true for us, beloved, as for Paul and the Philippians. Now, so go a little quicker here but included with that confidence that god is working out all of your things for your sanctification is paul's confidence that he god is also working all of his circumstances out verse 12 for the progress of the gospel this is where paul is and i and i think He's doing, he, his faith is stronger, he's more mature, but when he thinks about the Christian life, he doesn't think of the Christian life only from a him and God perspective. This, this is a, what do you call it? This is like a, I think a plague on our society. The plague on the Western culture mindset, that's, that's the one we live in is the individual uh, individuality perspective that we've been taught in our schools and in our upbringing that the world revolves around me i've said this before that's facebook that's that's why this stuff is like wildfire Th- this is why we have these struggles with gender identity with our kids because we're being told that the world revolves around us. And we've adopted that into some of our Christian walks where we start to think that Christianity in the gospel is really, at the end of the day, about me and God. And that's as far as we look at our circumstances of life. We evaluate everything based off our little myopic perspective of how is this thing impacting me we collapse in on ourselves. And the Apostle Paul, when he's, when he's looking at his life, he is looking at his imprisonments and his personal struggle, and he's thanking God that my personal struggle God is using to sanctify me. He's going to use yours to sanctify you. But I want you also to know that God is at work beyond you, in the world, God is working all things for his plans. And the confidence that Paul has, he's saying, and I know that all of my circumstances in life are actually working, what? For the progress of the gospel into the world. This is true for me and you. Our circumstances, whatever they may be, is God working to make his gospel known through your circumstances. He's reaching beyond you personally to making the excellencies of Christ known. This is how faith should operate in the world. And this church in Philippi, they really needed to know this. And the reason they needed to know this is because Philippi is this Roman colony. And Philippi, before they became redeemed and saved by the gospel, they're these Roman citizens and they have all these privileges of the Roman Empire that other cities don't have. They were able to regulate their own civic affairs. They had exceptions to certain rules and regulations from beatings. Um, they could appeal to the emperor. Or they could remain on the rolls of the Roman Empire. And so you can imagine that when the Apostle Paul comes, and now they're believers, and they're feeling the weight of Paul's imprisonment, and they're fearing the worst for the gospel. In other words, they're saying to themselves, this is what Paul is thinking of them. They're thinking, oh man, we gave up all this and now the circumstances that we see you in, Paul, these circumstances mean what's going to happen now to the gospel. Is the gospel going to be crushed? Is this powerful and this elite city of Philippi? Is, is the gospel, now that we've embraced it and placed our hope in it, is it all for nothing, Paul? Look at your circumstances. The gospel is looking weak. In the world, it looks weak. And Paul says, Hey, whatever your concerns and fears are about my circumstances or your own, understand that my circumstances and yours are actually working for the greater progress of the gospel. Because God is using it all to make Christ known. When I respond to my persecutors with faith and confidence and love, I make Christ known. When I respond to those who hate me with love and peace and mercy, I make Christ known. When the world wants to do me harm, but I do them good by pointing them to Christ, I make Christ known. When the world condemns me for my sin and tells me of my guilt within, Upward I look and I see him there who made an end to all my sin. I see Christ and I testify to his forgiveness and you can do what you will to my body but you will not destroy my soul because Christ has redeemed me. This is Paul's view. For me to live as Christ and to die as gain all of his circumstances and he wants them to know this is not the end beloved and of course he says in verse 18 hey christ is being proclaimed and in that i rejoice whatever the motives are christ is at work so so paul's living by faith he's confident That all of his circumstances, all of his life, God is sanctifying him. He's confident that in all of his circumstances, God is expanding the gospel. And beloved, the same is true for us. Whatever it is you've gone through, it's tailored for you. Whatever is to come is tailored for you. And whatever is to come is tailored for the advancement of the gospel. And for that, we rest and we trust in our mighty God, and we give thanks to him this morning. Let's pray. Our Lord God, we are so eternally grateful for your word and for the example of the Apostle Paul that is laid out here, how he... He really calls this church in Philippi, a church that was a a strong Roman colony, a church that was successful in in a material sense and had wealth, but but a church that saw his imprisonment and struggle and was fearful um, that the gospel would be overthrown. And he calls them to believe in you and to trust you, that you're working all of these things out for their good and for your glory. And, and Lord, we find ourselves in kind of a similar situation where we look at the city we lived in and we look at the nation we lived in and we see that it has been a nation full of success and wealth and power and dominance. And we could claim that we are citizens of this great country, the United States. And we could show our passports and feel like we have some belonging here, and yet we know that nations rise and nations fall, and we may have set our hope too strongly in this nation and and not realized its weakness, and now the gospel is being attacked even from our own government in some ways. The gospel is seeking to be silenced, and whether they are bakers or artists or um, uh, people having restaurants, Lord, in strange ways. Our our nation is rising up against Christians and the freedom to profess our faith in Christ. And we don't know where this is going to end, Father, but what we do know and are reminded of is that you are sovereign over all of it. And whatever happens to us is not happening to us by accident, but you are in control. Help us to have that confidence and to rest in the fact that you move and act according to your perfect plan and will and not ours. Help us to have the confidence, Father, in faith to know that all the circumstances of life are ultimately being used by you to make the name of Christ known. And may we be bold and confident enough to speak the truth no matter what the cost is. Help us not to hold back, Father. Help us not to fear. Help us not to crumble under the weight of our trials and the temptations that you have ordained for us, but help us to stand strong and firm in the Holy Spirit by the strength you provide, that at the end of the day, we may look and see him who is seated at your right hand and give him all the glory. It's in the name of Christ, our Savior, we pray and thank you, Father. Amen. Let's take our hymnals and turn to number 97. 97. We will glorify, and if you're able, please stand with me. And we'll sing all four. We will glorify the King of kings. We will glorify.